money is progressive. You don't just hit the jackpot. And that's how people think about their business. They go, we just have to keep going until we hit the jackpot. They don't realize that all of these little things provide them more leverage to be able to be in a position to even hit any type of jackpot. You know what I mean? And the jackpot really is the combination of all these things working together to create an incredible revenue model. Everything I do is about the movement of money. You know, if you take $100,000, you can move it from a car behind me to this watch back to the car, assuming the asset doesn't lose money. If you learn the transaction, you have the resources, you understand the asset, but more importantly, you understand how the money flows from one to the next. You can recycle the same $5 million into a $100 million lifestyle without actually having to have $100 million tied into a bunch of shit. We stand today. The Business Method the business with method. a shout-out. The Business Method. The Business Method Podcast. The Business Method Podcast featuring Chris Reynolds. Entrepreneurs, systems, methods, tools, and tactics for location independence. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I'm your host, Chris Reynolds, and welcome to the Business Method Podcast, a podcast featuring successful entrepreneurs and high-profile people dissecting their business models. We dissect the different methods, tools, and tactics of high-performance online entrepreneurs and high-caliber people in a series format. On our first series, we interviewed 100 entrepreneurs in 100 days that have built businesses creating $100,000 or more annually. On our second series, we interviewed 100 entrepreneurs that have built location-independent businesses that produce over a million dollars and annual revenue and now we're interviewing 100 major influencers to get behind the minds and the science of using influence to grow business and influence income results economies and cultures there's a growing number of people building these caliber of businesses like this and we're going to figure out what it takes to make this happen now let's jump in today's show the business method Hey guys, welcome back to the show today. Um, I've just been really enjoying the string of guests that we've had on. They have been incredibly insightful and wise entrepreneurs and really not even that old. Actually, three of them that I'm thinking, including today's guests, are all in their 30s. The first one that we had a few weeks ago was John Crestani. He's an incredible lifestyle entrepreneur that does a lot of affiliate marketing and has built his business up to where he does about $250,000 a month. Then we have Ezra Firestone, who's one of the number one online marketers out there in the world today, built an eight-figure company company and just really wise when it comes to both entrepreneurship and philosophy. And today's guest I brought on the show because he's just an amazing entrepreneur. I didn't even know how much of a philosopher he was also. And when as we dive into the show, it starts to come out and pretty much half the second half of the podcast, we talk about his philosophy on life. Um, economies, investments, and entrepreneurship. And it was just another episode that just kind of just kind of blew the smoke out of my ears. Uh, his name is Pejman Gadimi, and Pejman was actually born in Iran. He became a refugee, uh, raised in France, and then around 13 years old, came to the United States with his single mother. They were actually living in a basement in her uncle's house, and his mom was a cashier. And he made the decision at 14 years old that he was going to make a change in him and his mother's life and started washing cars. And literally by the time he, he was making good money washing cars from 14 to 18, at 18 he became a bank manager, rising to become one of the top employees and executives at that bank, and then eventually going back into the car washing business 
evolving that into an exotic, what he created was an exotic car fund. And he actually found out how he could get uh, Ferraris and exotic cars at uh, 30, 40, 50% discounts and buying them when buying them in bulk, creating this exotic car fund and then reselling them, built that to nearly a hundred million dollar company. Um, and then moving into his business is now exotic car hacks that he built into a seven figure business watch trading company also. And then his books that he also has in his personal brand, as well as the secret entourage, which is his membership site. And he helps a lot of people learn about entrepreneurship. So collectively, all of his companies pull in 2018, $87 million. And the reason why I think Pejman or PJ is at this level is not because, well, not just because he's a smart entrepreneur and a smart and very smart with his money. But towards the end of the show, you guys will realize that he's very much a philosopher and he sees the world very differently. And we talk about some of the ways that he sees the world, which help him have the foresight to set himself up to be, uh, have a huge competitive advantage when creating these these businesses and finding success. So that is today's guest, you guys. This is one I have to I'm gonna listen to this one again, and I know I'm going to be taking notes. Um, I even told him on the show I'm going to uh, buy both of his books right after the show and because I really want to read those. They sound incredibly intriguing. But first, I want to give a quick shout out to our sponsors, NomadX.com. I'm really glad to have these guys on board as our sponsors because not only are they friends, but they're providing a really amazing service for location-independent entrepreneurs and digital nomads around the world that makes our lives so much easier. At NomadX, you can find apartments, bedrooms, or co-living spaces in Portugal to rent on a monthly basis. They are completely equipped for digital nomads and remote workers, 50% more affordable than Airbnb. But that's not all. Nomad X, you guys, has an inclusive community of like-minded people so you never feel lonely while traveling through the country and spending time in major cities. Nomad X has so many events for guests and the local communities. They have weekly dinners, meetups, workshops, masterminds, ecstatic dance parties, yoga, meditation retreats, and so much more. Globally, you can find the Nomad X Facebook group, a lifestyle community for digital nomads where you can get all the tips to help you on your journey. But that's not all. They're fully operating in Portugal and will soon be launching in Bali. Get all the details at nomadx.com. That is nomadx.com. And now let's jump back into today's podcast. Pejman, Gadimi, enjoy the show. It's a fantastic, fantastic episode. Entrepreneurs, systems, methods, tools, and tactics. Welcome to the Business Method Podcast, you guys. Today, I have another incredible guest that I am really excited to introduce you to. His name is Pejman Gadimi, and he is a self-made entrepreneur, philosopher, and the author of the best-selling books, The Third Circle Theory and Radius. Over the last 20 years, Pejman has built a multitude of businesses ranging from a one-of-a-kind investment firm that focuses on alternative asset management, known as VIP motoring, to a series of online education businesses, including the Secret Entourage, Exotic Car Hacks, and Watch Trading Academy that have reshaped 
what and how people learn. In 2018, Pejman's companies finished the fiscal year with over $87 million in combined revenue, a byproduct of his very own teaching. Pejman is the perfect example of how resourcefulness and self-education are the two most powerful keys to success. Today, Pejman is a mentor of over 36,000 students from across the globe, and his teachings have created many six, seven, and eight figure entrepreneurs. I'm really excited to welcome him to the show. Pejman, how are you today, buddy? Good, buddy. How are you doing? Good. I see you're, you're calling in from your studio, aka garage there in Florida, right? In Palm Beach? Yeah, in, uh, in Delray Beach. It's like a man cave slash little office. Uh, we carved out over here. I'm a big car guy, so putting all these cars in at the house just became impossible. It just made more sense to start a little mini warehouse and just start storing cars there. Ah, good. How many cars do you have? Uh, currently going on eight for personal and about 26 out of 47 left on the business side. I've been trying to down, downgrade a little bit lately. And, and do you have a favorite, one favorite car, one that stands out above the others for you? Uh, well, I think I, I, it's not really like a, a favorite thing or not. It's just there are cars that are more exciting than others. You know, actually the one that I'm most excited about is not uh, here. It's actually at the shop. And it's gutted in half. They're redoing the motor. It's an older Ford GT, like the original uh, Ford from the movie, Ford versus Ferrari. You know, so they're doing, uh, they're redoing that uh, particular car for me just because it had, uh, it's old now. You know, it's like 17 years old. So they kind of needed a lot of stuff. But so that car I've loved very much. But I'm always about very rare and collectible one-off cars uh, that are kind of like, Cool, rare. I mean, behind me, I don't know if you can see, this is a really rare Range Rover that's like literally 200 grand. You see a GT3 RS and an Aston Martin. And then since your audience is watching, I'll show you guys. I mean, we might as well. Yeah, let's go on a tour. It right? makes it more interesting. We're going outside, <laughs> but you can see my McLaren right behind. Oh, nice. Right? Just bike. So, you know, I love cars. So what can I say? It's one of these things that goes <laughs> hand-to-hand with everything I do, right? Yeah. Do you have a car, a dream car that you haven't purchased yet that you really want to get your hands on? No, actually, I've, I've owned everything I've ever wanted to own. So nothing that, <clears throat> nothing that I want, that I'm willing to pay for, I haven't paid for, if that makes sense. You know, there are cars that I feel are incredibly different. Like uh, you can talk about like the new Apollo that came out and some of these uh, very one-off Bugatti editions. But I wouldn't personally be a buyer for those cars, meaning I have no interest in paying $6 million for a car that is like a one-off type of color, you know, or like it just doesn't do anything for me. So I just don't see the value there. But nonetheless, uh, lots of cool cars out there. It's just a question of your personality and what matches it best. If I'm correct, your first business was in the exotic car business? So my first business was a car wash that started out of desperation because I didn't have a green card. (laughs) And that, uh, when I was 14 years old, evolved into a tuning shop. when I was about 25 years old. So that became like just putting wheels and exhaust on exotic cars, you know, like meaning at the time, any luxury exotic cars. And during the recession, that business, same business evolved into VIP motoring, which became the world's first fund uh, to allow people to invest in alternative assets, such as cars, watches, and art. Uh, But it was just the evolution of basically a survival need business model that just was there. And then over the years when I did leave a very successful and prominent banking career and came back into my business uh, as like with money, instead of this time being broke without a green card, with actual money, with the ability to do things, 
uh, it became something much larger and bigger. Also because I decided to commit to that instead of just saying, oh, it's just a part-time business or hobby or anything else that just is required to survive, you know? Yeah. So I want to talk um, more about how that business, how you made that business successful during the recession process. But first, I'd like to chat um, your ba- about your background a bit more. So you are from Iran, and you and your mother were refugees uh, raised in France, correct? Correct. Paris, Yeah. yeah. And then you guys came to the U.S. and uh, when you were, is that 14 you said? Yeah, it was about like 13, 14 when we came to the United States, first in L.A. and then in Virginia. And in Virginia, uh, we pretty much had no green card, lived in a basement. And we decided at that point that like my mom was going and becoming a cashier at that point at my uncle's restaurant. And you have to understand that my mom came from a background that was extremely successful. So when we were in Iran, she was very high up the ranks working for the government. Like, you know, she had servants, we lived in a great house. So you have all of this like background being like wealth and being, you know, kings like uh, kind of quarters kind of stuff. And at the end of the day, we leave to go to LA only to be poor, you know, from France. We we go to France to be poor and then we take whatever poverty we have from France to LA. And then from LA to Virginia, but Virginia was a critical point because we ended up in my uncle's basement uh, because we had no means to having our own house or anything or the papers to do anything. But one of the things that occurred there is that I kind of took the reins in Virginia where I decided, okay, even if I'm 14, I'm still going to help. I'm no longer going to be a victim to just my mom suffering by herself. So we're going to suffer together. And I think that big change occurred uh, like basically when I kind of realized that I wasn't going to have an ever after happy ending to my life if I didn't make a change because things weren't trending in the right direction. They were trending downwards, meaning every time we left the state or a country, my mom's kind of like prestige of what she had attempted to build would keep going down and down and down. And now we were down to $5 an hour at a, as a cashier in a restaurant, you know, for a woman that used to head like probably uh, the largest like Lockheed Martin type business in Iran, you know? So, to, to see that was not only heartbreaking, but also to see the tenacity that my mom had in her ability to not give a fuck about the fact that she was a cashier and still try um, made me realize that one, she didn't have the energy to, to go back up, you know, because she was not there. But it also showed me that she wasn't afraid to be a cashier because it was what was necessary for us. And so I realized that maybe I shouldn't be afraid of work, even if it's not expensive work, good work rich work or anything else. Was there a moment, do you remember an exact moment when that switch happened for you? Yeah, actually, because I was in the basement and I remember we had a mattress and I had a, believe it or not, I had a Sega Saturn, which at the time was expensive. That was what I had conned my mom into like buying me when we moved from, uh, when, when we moved from France to uh, the United States, it was such an overnight move. I had to give up my cat. And so when I had to give up my cat, I was like, the only way I'm giving up my cat is if I trade him for a Sega Saturn. So I was like, listen, if I get to keep this, if I get a Saturn, then you get the cat. Like we can give away the cat. So I sold my cat for a Sega Saturn pretty much. You know, a very cheap move, but nonetheless, I knew I didn't have a choice. So I just wanted to put my mind on something that could. So when we got there in that basement, that's all we really had, you know, like this mobile closet, this and that. And the baseline for that, one of the things I realized is we didn't have windows in that basement. We had those tiny windows because it was, you know, like a little bit above ground level, but so you had smaller windows. And I used to watch these kids that were 16 years old because we were in a pretty decent neighborhood. They were going to school in Camaros and in other 
you know, like nice cars. And I'm like, okay, like this is so far from my reality that I was like, I have no idea what to do to get that. But like, I know one thing, they're always happy. They're always out. They have friends, they have things and I don't have anything. So I said, even if I have no car or none of this shit in five, 10 years, at least I don't want to be in this basement. So I, I remember very precisely because I looked at my mom and I said, we can be poor for 10 years. I don't give a shit. As long as we're not as poor as we were the year before. So I said, I don't care if it's like a dollar better, like you have $100 in your account and next year you survive and you have $101 in your account. It's still better than having $100. So I go, I'm just going to work and I'm going to try to find a job. And she wasn't opposed to it. She was like, as long as you don't fuck up in school, you're fine. Like, just go find a job. So I went to McDonald's uh, and I remember precisely I asked the man, because McDonald's for me was like walking distance. I didn't have a car, so it was within reach. So we're a couple of stores there. That was the only one that seemed interesting. So I walked in and I offered to, I didn't have a green card. So I was like, listen, I'll wash your floors for $3, uh, like an hour. Like just, I'll clean your floors, toilets, whatever. Just give me a job, like get me in the door, you know? And they were like, no, you don't have a green card. I can't help you. So then I walked to a couple of other offices by there. Nobody wanted to hire anybody. And of course, as a 14 year old kid, you don't know what you're doing, right? You're not walking in with a resume and a suit. You know, you're kind of like walking in and being like, yo, you have a job. And people look at you like, what are you, retarded? <laughs> you know, fuck out of here. So that didn't work out very well. But then I realized that the big obstacle for me was that we didn't have papers. And while I had a social security number uh, and, and kind of card, it didn't say, it said not valid for work. So I could never get away with this idea that I could work in a corporation or a company. So I kind of gave that up and I decided, you know what, I'm going to go mow lawns, clean cars, do whatever I have to uh, at whatever it costs to kind of try to make something out of the time I have. And I started with just saying, like, I'm going to go and make like $5 an hour washing a car. And I said, if $5 an hour washing a car is better than nothing. And that's what I did. I went in the neighborhood and I started washing cars for five bucks a car. And that gave birth to a car wash. And I had another friend that was also uh, literally uh, like unemployable the same way I was for not having papers. So I go, hey, come wash cars with me. Together we'll wash cars. It'll be great. So that kind of gave birth to the first car wash business. Fourteen. How long did that last? Well, it actually lasted till 25. <laughs> so, but it wasn't, the point was that what happened is I eventually did get a job. I figured out a way to get a job at this place and I, I got a telemarketing job. And so when I got a telemarketing job at this small company, the guys were in my school offering like telemarketing jobs. I didn't know what a telemarketer was. Uh, so I got those jobs uh, and I got that basic job because he played $12 an hour and I thought that was better than washing a car for five bucks. So I took it. I said, I don't even know what it means to be a telemarketer. I'll try it. We'll figure it out. You know? Uh, so I did that. But the big thing there was that when I did that, I still kept washing cars. I still kept telling my friend that was washing cars. We had one more guy that had joined us. I was like, you guys keep washing cars. And since I'm going to this new building for work, I'll print out some flyers, you know, and put them out on these other cars in the parking lot. Maybe we can just wash cars here. We can all go to my office together. Except I'll go upstairs and I'll make calls. You guys stay downstairs and wash cars. And during my break, I'll come down and I'll help you or I'll put out more flyers. And the system actually worked because there were two of them cleaning. And I was up and doing, taking phone calls all day. So I was the one that literally, I had one of those big ass Nokia cell phones, you know. And I was like taking calls from people. And I was like, yeah, like I, we can wash your car. We're right here in the building. And people got really excited. So we made a business out of washing cars in that one building. Uh, and which was really interesting because, you know, years later, I kept getting promoted over and over and over in this company. By the time I was 18, I was already making like 80K a year. And I was uh, very competent in this. I now had a green card. I was competent in sales service. 
uh, telemarketing, canvassing, and also understood management. So I was doing all these things while these guys were still cleaning cars. So I decided by then, I said, I need to go do something else. I can't be in the remodeling field forever. So I, I didn't understand money. I didn't understand entrepreneurship. I said, the one thing I want to do is make money. And since I don't know how to make money, like big money, you know, like these other guys wearing $30,000, $40,000 watches, how did I do that? I decided what I needed to do, though, is perhaps go where the money was. And the money was in banks because I was like, banks have money. I don't know what the fuck they do with it, but I'll figure it out. So I got a job as the youngest bank manager in the United States at 18 uh, without a degree. I convinced the guy after six months of recon to like give me a job in a uh, in a management trainee program. You know, like I got my foot in the door in that. And through that, like I ended up just kind of working my way up the rank, but just graduating faster, studying more and taking the job very seriously. Like this was an opportunity more than it was just a job, you know. Right. But what was funny is my friends kept washing cars. Yeah. And so by the time I got fired out of banking, they were still washing cars and making like 200K a year doing it. Nice. When I left banking, I was a millionaire. So I was like, I have money. I'm going to now go and buy you a building and we'll clean cars together. Except we'll do it right. You know, like with an actual building, detailing, tuning and everything. They got excited about it. And then they realized quickly that this was going to be more than just a cleaning job. So when you did that six months of recon, did you keep going back for the banking job? Did you keep going back to the same same job over and over and same manager saying, hey, hire me, hire me, hire me, or were you going to different banks? So that's a really good question because it really didn't work out that way. Uh, it was a little bit more complex than that. So basically, I wanted a job in this bank. Like I wanted to work in a bank, but I could not afford to like just walk in and apply because I didn't have the credentials. I didn't have the, uh, I didn't have a business degree or anything else. And here was the problem. I was making 80 K plus a year. There was no job in the bank that I could translate to like go from that to a teller or a salesperson and actually keep my salary. And remember we didn't have any money. So I was the only bread provider in my family. Right? So for me, what ended up happening at that point was really that it came down to this idea that, I had to somehow get into management and I, and technically even as a bank manager, I was taking a pay cut. So I was like, that's the only pay cut I can afford to take. So what I did is I had a, my mom had a friend that worked in a bank, like in that bank, uh, that I wanted to go apply at cause they had locations everywhere. It was more of a, it's close to home. So it's not going to be like a long drive to get to the bank. So the thing was I went there and I had her tell me like kind of look over my resume and she said, you have leadership experience. You have all these different things. We can probably put you in the door in sales. And I said, I don't want to go in the door in sales. But she says, that's the only way you're going to get in. So I said, get me an interview for that. And when I went in, uh, the manager that was interviewing me, I spent literally three months from the time that she uh, told me that she could try to get me in the door to the time I got an interview. I would go to various banks across the, the same city I lived in. They had a bunch of locations. And I would observe uh, how they worked, meaning like, like, what did they do? What did the sales staff do? What did they probably thought I was trying to rob the bank, you know, because they were like, well, this dude's like around roaming around taking notes and shit. Uh -huh. and, and the thing was, like, I was paying attention to like what the sales staff is doing, what the management staff is doing, who's the manager, who's not. And I started asking managers like, hey, if I wanted to work in a bank in a couple of years, what would I need to know? They were like, oh, we really do a lot of sales. So I understood the role of each person in a bank. When I went to my interview, the guy thought I was really cocky for telling him on the first try that I wanted to have a management job. He thought I was crazy. But really what happened is, I blew his mind by literally practicing what his employees were not. I went up to him and I said, listen, I will go in the aisles. They were in a supermarket. So I said, I will go in the aisles and I will bring back two people that need to open accounts right now. 
And your staff can't do that. And they go, how do you know my staff can't do that? And I go, look at them. There's five of them. All of them are sitting behind a computer. None of them are out there talking to people. So he thinks I'm a really cocky prick, but he goes, okay, it's tough shit. Go out there and like, show me what you're going to do. So I go out there and I bring back two people. Well, I took a fake name tag. I walked in, a, you know, in the aisles. I brought two people and I was like, here, talk to them about opening accounts. So he goes from my biggest hater like, to like, this guy's like this cocky little kid to like, my biggest advocate and goes, I got to put you in front of a regional manager. We got to talk. So he puts me in for a manager program. Like he puts me in for the manager job. But the regional manager goes, I can't give you a manager job. Like, I can't justify that. You're 18. You have all these things. So he goes, I'm going to give you either an assistant manager job or I'm going to send you to management trainee program, which in six months you can come out as an assistant manager. So I said, fuck it. That's probably the only way I can get in the door. So what I did is I got in the door to that program and I graduated in four months. You know, it was like an eight-month program. I graduated in half the time. And then came the best choice I made in my career, which was he asked me, he goes, do you want to go to a really popular high-end location? that's like really like well-known prestigious and be an assistant manager or do you want to go to the dumbest most fucked up bank we have as a bank manager that's like <laughs> in the middle of bumfuck nowhere that no one's been able to make work and and i thought about it and i go i'll take the title before i take the pay and the prestige so i said give me the bank manager title and send my ass over there so he sends me there and in like maybe six months later i made that place one of the top six places in the district so just pushing sales, not even like knowing anything about fucking management or leadership. I didn't give a shit. I was like, let's sell shit. So we started selling stuff. And as a result of that, um, I quickly got noticed by a lot of people and kept like promoting myself to like a higher level manager in a better location to eventually a regional manager to eventually an executive. And then when I became an executive, I created airport banking for that bank, which I decided to put air like banks inside airports. That became a really big deal. As a result of that, I got a lot of credit for it. And those became the most profitable banks we ever had at that bank, pretty much. So as a result of all that, I was doing really well. I got really cocky. And then came the big, okay, we're selling our bank to another bank. We're going to have to let you go, kind of thing. Yeah. You know, like, and, <laughs> and basically, my cockiness fired myself because I threw my badge. And I was like, well, if that's how it is, then I'm out of here. Like, you're going to call me tomorrow. And you're going to beg me to come back because I'm your top producer. Well, nobody called. And then I kept waiting. Nobody called. So then by then, I'm like, fuck, no one's calling. And eventually, somebody called to tell me I'm fired. So I was like, fuck. <laughs> like, <I'm completely laughs> like, they didn't tell me I'm fired. They said, well, you, you kind of quit. So we're just letting you know what you're, where you can go to collect your benefits. I'm like, what the fuck? Like, I could have at least gotten a severance pack or yeah. something. <laughs> but nope, I pretty much fired myself out of that. What, what bank was that that you were working with? Uh, it was, yeah, it was Chevy Chase Bank at yeah. the time in the Washington, D.C. area. Yeah. Uh, and then... Uh, as a result of that, it was sold to Capital One Bank, which during the recession, you know, it was approaching. And I was, uh, I like, they knew they were going to make that deal, if that makes sense. Half of it got sold to PNC Bank, the other half to Capital One Bank, and that was it. So I, I want to jump. So your next venture after that was the Exotic Car Fund. Is that correct? So after that, I went back to uh, actually like cleaning cars, you know, because I go, well, I had nothing to do. I had nothing to do. I got fired, right? So I was like, fuck, I have nothing to do in my day. I'm going to go do something because I'm not going to sit at home and do nothing. But I was already rich. I had done really good in real estate. I mean, I had quit. I had a beautiful six-figure salary that I had saved. You know, I wasn't living above my means. My house was paid off. So like all these things were going well for me. Uh, so when I, when I got fired, I didn't lose money. I lost purpose, if that makes sense. So I didn't know what I wanted to do anymore because I was a really good banker. And someone just told me I can't be a banker anywhere anymore. So I go, well, why not? It's like, well, because no one's going to hire you because the only bank that can vouch for you won't vouch for you. you know? 
So it's like, and, and no one's going to give a 24, 25 year old an executive job, you know, still no degree, still no like long experience, 10 years. I kind of rode the wave and the hard work paid off, but it didn't get me far enough, you know, to, to make a career out of being a banker. So I decided, I was like, well, I got to do something. So I went back to my buddies that were washing and I go, well, let's buy a building. Let's get into it. Uh, we started doing that. We started tuning cars and through my tuning contract with some of the dealerships locally, I realized that as the recession was approaching, we were no longer uh, going to be able to maintain these tuning contracts, meaning that we were no longer going to be able to sell wheels to exotic dealerships because they no longer could finance people up to 120%. And things were starting to change. And you knew the recession was coming, right? Right. Like they knew because slowdown in sales, bank guidelines were tightening. So things were changing, right? And people realized it. And as a banker, I said, well, this makes sense. And people are overexposed in these loans and so on and so forth. So I go, this is going to be a problem. So what I did is I, I went and I had a discussion with one of my top vendors at the time, which uh, was buying wheels from me. It was a Ferrari dealership. And we started uh, having conversations about like how fucked they are. You know, I was like, how bad is this like for you guys? And they're like, look, we haven't sold a car in a month and a half. You know, and I'm like, okay, that's a problem because that's not the image we're getting yet. So we didn't think it was that bad yet. You know, we thought six months, a year, it would get worse. They're like, no, it's completely fucked. So they're like, I just want to tell you, we're going to kill your contract. I'm like, I already know that. You don't have to fucking tell me that. So one of the things that happened then is as a joke, we started conversing about if he wants to sell me Ferraris at 50 off, you know, 50% off. And he goes, well, I can't give you 50 off as a joke. He goes, I can give you 40 off probably. So I was like, well, you give me 40 off, I'll buy all of them in the showroom. And they just start laughing and they're just like, well, you want me to check them? So it was a joke. But the guy comes back and he's like, my boss said, if you keep it on the hush hush, he'll sell you all of them at 40 off just to move the inventory out. So I'm like, you're going to sell me a Ferrari at 40% off? He's like, no, I'm going to sell you nine of them. So I'm like, holy shit. You know, like this, I was like, this is a fucking problem because I have to come up with the money to pay for them. So I had saved a ton of money, but I didn't have enough to survive and pay for this. You know, so I had to make a choice. Like, do I buy these cars? Or, or do I keep like that safety net in my life that I have all this money? And I, because I, remember, I'm still not making the same money as I was making in the bank cleaning cars, right? Like I'm just like fucking washing cars trying to make this business work. And my money saved, my seven figure saved was the only thing I had that was like, this is it. Like if I don't make anything else, at least I can live off of that and downgrade my lifestyle and just kind of live that way. And so for me, it was like, here's the choice. And what I did is I bought the cars. I said, fuck it, no fear. I'm going to buy these cars. I'm going to sell them. And so people always ask me, they go, well, why would you sell them if they couldn't sell them? Why would they just sell them? The point was that Ferrari couldn't advertise 40% off cars, but this was a back-end deal through another, because we had a deal license, so it was like, you're just going to ship them over. So it, it all made sense, you know, meaning it made sense for us, for me specifically, to make that investment with the idea that I could turn around and sell these cars for more money, like 20 off, 30 off, things that they couldn't advertise. The part I didn't realize is how much of these cars at the time were financed and without banks backing up clients, we were fucked. I had all this inventory and I had nothing to do with it. So, and all my money was tied in. I had no cash flow. All my reserves were tied. I was completely fucked. And then came this idea, which was, I need someone to float me who has a lot more money than me, meaning float these cars for me. Because my idea is not fucked. It's just premature in timing, meaning that like no one's doing it now, but in a year, in two years, in three years, things will change again. You know, right, and people right. will, will buy again. So I go, and these will not be driven. So they'll, they'll kind of hold their value at that 40 off. I can't really lose. I just may not make, you know, so I need to get someone else to float this. 
So I went back to my clients in banking, which at the time where I had a bunch of investors who I had been close friends with, who had a lot of money, like they were worth nine, you know, nine figures and up. So I was like, Hey, listen, I I called about 40 of them and I go, do you want to come in and buy Ferraris with me? They didn't know I had already bought them. I was like, do you want to float these, you know, a couple of cars? And and a lot of them go, no, you're crazy. This isn't going to work. And and three of them go, "I'll, I'll look at it. So I bring them over. We look at these cars. They go, well, this is a good place for me to park money. Since we can't park it in the bank, we can't park it in bonds, we can't park it in the stock market. I was like, exactly. Like, so you put some of your money. Two of them said, okay, we'll do it. So two of them floated in my entire inventory. Third one was like, I'm not ready for this yet. You know, I'm going to wait it out, see what happens. So I said, all right. And then what happened is, so they floated me and I had more, my money back, but I had these cars now. So what ended up happening through that is I said, well, I wonder if I can do this again on another dealership, except this time actually get better rates, like better deals now that I understand what's possible. I'll go, maybe I'll push them as the recession continues. And I did. So I started building a collection of mid-level exotic cars that literally were brand new that were bought at significant discounts because these dealerships were going out of business. But I also started realizing that there was an opportunity by doing these bailouts, by buying like future favors. So I would say, well, I'll buy this if later you give me this other very rare to find car that's supposed to come out and you guarantee me a spot. So the money was in these rare cars. It wasn't in these cars, but the leverage was in these cars. So I pretty much kind of leveraged my bet that these other cars I would get by buying these cars now. And so basically the cash flow came from the more expensive cars, but these cheaper cars, which were like 100 to 300K cars, were just basically like a 10% margin, which were almost the same as like a good year in the stock market. So I thought to myself and I said, well, this makes a lot of sense. If I can manage these people's money into these cars and I can get these hypercars for cost, then I can sell those for my profit margins. And then so I did the math and I go, if I can get three of those a year, I can still make a million and a half a year. So I'm you know, doing just what I was doing in banking with three cars, which made a lot of sense. So I go, this is what we're going to do. We're going to buy these, get these hypercar allocations, sell those, leverage this fine and manage this investment for other people. And kind of this gave birth to VIP motoring. And from there, we found that building a concierge service, because people would ask, they go, well, I'm investing in these cars. Can I take one home? And I'm like, no, we can't drive them. That defeats the purpose. So they go, well, I want to drive one. I want to buy one. So I started this whole collective like dealership model that was like, well, we're concierge too. If you want to buy your cars here, some of them will sell you. You can drive them, bring them back, et cetera. We did short-term 12-month leases that weren't really leases. They were just buys for 12 months with a guaranteed buyback. Uh, and then we started getting into watches, car, uh, watches, art, and cars. And so basically, like, the whole model started evolving. And by, it was about 2007, 2008, to the deepest part of the recession, we had this model completely built, you know, that just made sense to, like, really go into and just kind of, like, have an actual model to making money in this business, you know? And so we, we got good at it. And by 2011, I retired as CEO. I still own the business today, but I, I left my, uh, actually the guy that was washing cars with me at the very beginning in 2011, took over as CEO. And uh, in 2014, he left, meaning like he just quit, he retired. And then I've assigned another person now, and I'm kind of trying to transition that business now from Virginia to Florida and downgrade it a little bit. Because again, times have changed. We need to adapt to new business models. And what we were doing before, I was the first and only one doing it. Now there's four people doing it. So we're all fighting over the same cars and losing the leverage 
So it doesn't make sense, you know, meaning like it doesn't make sense to continue that business the same way. Dude, that's amazing. That that business model is incredibly creative, I think. Like the way that you came up with that and thought it and, and you could foresight exactly what was going to happen and, and how you could make it work. Like, I think that's really cool. Well, I was a banker, right? I used my own talent. I wasn't a car dealer. I was a banker. And that's one of the things I tell people today. Everything I do is about the movement of money. Even today in all of my businesses, it's about moving money from one place to another. You know, if you take $100,000, you can move it from a car behind me to this watch back to the car, assuming the asset doesn't lose money, right? Like you can take it in and out. And if you learn how to buy and sell, like the, if you learn the transaction, then there is nothing that's stopping you because you know the transaction, you have the resources, you understand the asset, but more importantly, you understand how the money flows from one to the next you can recycle the same $5 million into a $100 million lifestyle without actually having to have $100 million tied into, you know, a bunch of shit. Because most people in this world are consumers of themselves. Like they consume things. They buy a car to consume it. They buy a house to consume it. I buy everything as an investment. doesn't matter. It's my own house, my own cars, my business cars. Everything I buy is an investment of transferring money into that asset and letting it sit what do you think are most in regards to like entrepreneurs and, and money flow? What do you think most people are missing? Exactly that they, they're consumers. So when they go and they, they need to purchase something, they look at it as, Oh, I need a building. So what does it cost to have a building? They don't think about how can I invest in a building? So the building makes me money as much as the actual business. They go, where should my business be? That's where my customers are. They're very one sided to how they look at business. They look at the surface of a business and they go, there's one layer to this business, which is I make money through my service and product. They don't think about the offset of like, how do I minimize my exposure to risk by leveraging the building, leveraging the assets, buying the stuff used, kind of making sure there's no cost basis going into the business until it is profitable. You have no idea how many times like uh, people, I know a lot of people in, uh, in the fitness industry, right? They want to build little gyms and stuff, you know, and they go, well, I can't function here until I have this cryotherapy room, I have this yoga room, I have this, and they're personal trainers. And I'm like, well, what the fuck happened to a training studio? It's complete downstairs. So start making money off of that and then go there and then leverage the funds from that to buy that. So it's a progressive journey, right? And one of the biggest things is that with money, it's the same thing. Money is progressive. It doesn't just come at once. Like you don't just hit the jackpot. And that's how people think about their business. They go, we just have to keep going till we hit the jackpot. They don't realize that all of these little things provide them more leverage to be able to be in a position to even hit any type of jackpot. You know what I mean? And the jackpot really is the combination of all these things working together to create an incredible revenue model. And that's what they miss out the most. They become consumers of other people who have businesses, which is the problem. You know what I mean? Like when they go buy something, they go, well, I need this and you're selling this. So I'm just going to buy it. When I'm like, when that's counterproductive to the whole idea of owning a business, because you should realize that you have consumers that pay for your service. So you should never become a consumer of someone else's service. You know, you should learn to barter. You should learn to create relationships. You should learn to know the people that run these other companies. They can become supportive of your cause and you supportive of theirs. Because the one thing you don't have when you start a business is resources. You don't have money. Like you don't have as much money as when you 10 years in the business, really good at what you do and you're making $10 million. So one of the keys to make sure that in the earlier years, you're not becoming a consumer of your entire circle. Yeah. Um, so you have a couple books, the, the, uh, radius and the third, uh, third circle theory. And you talk about the pillars and radius, the pillars of entrepreneurship and business. Are these, uh, what are those pillars? Are these 
some of the, uh, the like is one of them one that you're talking about now no so the idea is that like third circle theory i'll start there because third circle theory is a more important book than radius and it also goes in that order third circle theory which we refer to as tct radius and then the third one which is coming out in a couple of months and so basically third circle theory is about the evolution of the mind of a human through different stages and how creativity and entrepreneurship work together to enable the elevation of aspiration to a state of separating basically society from life and learning how to succeed at both simultaneously because a lot of people uh, can't separate the two meaning to them society is life life is society and so on and so forth and they get lost in this clusterfuck of thinking that money is the ultimate essence of success and so on and so forth and they can never branch out if you've seen very successful people that have a lot of money be unhappy this is typically why because they're stuck in this never-ending rat race of uh, from one rat race to the next right to the money one the, the concept, though, in third circle theory is about the evolution to three stages, the mastery of circumstance, the mastery of society, and the mastery of life. Radius is about understanding that a business, the same as a human, has the same kind of evolutionary track, which goes from basically people to idea, you know, idea to business, business to brand, brand to empire. And the idea is that while the simplicity in, in building a business is truly there, people, you know, may think of these five pillars and go, okay, people ideas, business, brand, empire. We've all heard these words. They're very generic, cliche words, but, but they're not. They're actually very simple words that describe different phases that businesses are in. People are often the ones that complicate the function of a business because they try to skip one. Many young people today go, oh, I'm going to build a great brand. And I go, what is your idea? And they go, I haven't gotten there. Uh, so how do you even know an idea is possible of a brand? Why are we even having that conversation when you're not even there? You know, it's like, it's like the idea that a, long, a lot of young people come to me and go, make me a millionaire. And I look at them and I go, okay, do you have $10 to your name? They're like, yes. I'm like, do you have $100 to your name? They go, yes. I'm like, do you have 1000 They go, no. So how about I teach you how to make 1000 before you worry about making a million? So the basic idea is that everybody looks at these numbers and complicates their path to these numbers because they don't look at their journey as progressive. They don't look at how do I make 1000 Well, to make 1000 you have to learn to create a service or product. When you make a service or product, you have to learn to scale that to make 10000 then 100000 And then at $100,000 mark, you can say, well, my $5 product is now has the attributes of a brand so we can focus on also making a brand. So what I'm saying is like, this is a progressive journey, but people are focused on worried about all the moving pieces of a brand at the idea stage and therefore cluttering their mental space with something that will never perhaps even happen in their business. And as a result, will like deteriorate from even taking their idea into a product, enabling themselves to make a hundred grand. You know, a lot of times people complain, oh, this is hard to make a million dollars. But I go, have you tried to make $10,000? And they go, no. I'm like, why not? You need to make 10,000 before you make a million. There's no way you can make a million without making 10 grand, right? But there is a way for you to make 10 grand without making a million, but yet you're not thinking about that. That's a really good point. And then what's your third book about? So the third book is actually gonna be very, very complex. It's gonna throw people off a little bit. It's about dimensional awareness and something that where we match uh, the spirit to basically the idea that uh, how everything works together. So the meaning like it, it's more about, I mean, I can't, it, it would really take me like an hour to take you to it. But the basic concept is that every human is in a form of dimensional awareness, like lives within a state of dimensional awareness. So I teach people exactly how other species have evolved from stages and how we can evolve to a state of fourth dimensional awareness. 
That's incredible. Actually, uh, do you when's that book coming out? It's called the. It's going to be called the Gate of Choice, and it's coming out. Uh, I'm hoping to have it done by the end of February at the latest, and have it start going to publishing for my birthday by April 10th. So. I think I'm going to download your books right after the call. They sound really intriguing. I think Third Circle Theory is going to speak to you a lot. Radius is a business book, but Radius isn't complete without the third one. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like people don't connect business to themselves; they connect business to money. And that's the biggest issue. If you ask a lot of young people, like if you ask a lot of young people, how do, how do they know what they want to do? They go, what industry is going to be really successful next year? Tell me so I can be doing that. And I tell people, I said, that's why you're always going to be poor because you're always chasing the money. You're not allowing the money to chase you. And they go, what does that mean? I say, well, figure out what you want to do and then get really good at it so that people cannot pay anyone else to do it. And if that's the case, then the money will chase you because people will fight to pay you to do what they do. And then as a result of that, you'll never have to worry about like, where does my money come from? Versus if you're always like, what industry is hot? You're trying to take the low hanging fruit without becoming talented at something. And the talent is what gets you paid. The taking is what leaves you poor because you, you only consume as fast as you take and then you're broke again and you have no, no food. Nowadays you have multitude of businesses in different industries. You have the secret entourage, you have exotic car hacks, you have watch trading Academy, anything else going on? No. So we have a, I have a new, I have another book launching for kids uh, that I can't talk about yet that will be launching in April too around cars for children. Uh, I do a lot of investments in uh, other businesses like uh, in the fitness industry, actually, believe it or not uh, in the auto industry as well. So, and into art, uh, and into new coming artists as well that are painting, you know, like paint art or, or graffiti, et cetera. But basically, if you look at the entire structure of all my life and businesses, they are the byproduct of my own radius model. So, you know, which stands for reaching across different industries, uncovering solutions. That's what radius stands for. So the basic idea of the radius model is that if you look at what I've done with, for example, my investment firm, right? We have a concierge service, we teach investments, and we bring on people with $5 million in investable cash and put them into these cars and assets like watches and art. A lot of people came to me and said, well, I want to do that, but I don't have $5 million. So I gave them an online platform called Exotic Car Hacks, where it's a do-it-yourself version of hacking a car, meaning getting in and out of exotics while making money or just driving for free, whichever one you want to do. I gave them Watch Trading Academy to teach them how to make money with watches. Again, just a byproduct of my own businesses for a new audience. So basically I recorded what I know and I said, now let me sell air to people because that's what we sell when we sell infomercial, right? So, the, but the basic idea is the value content is still based on my talent. Okay. You see what I mean? Because that's what I was talented at doing and I found a way to get a new medium of, of customers for that talent. And so, so the, the flow of income continues. Then the other point is also like one of the big things I say is, let's say I have, for example, VIP motoring uh, is like, we'll use a round number so it's easy for people. This year we'll do probably a hundred, like last year just closed a little bit uh, under a hundred million dollars in revenue, okay? Out of that a hundred million dollars in revenue, I took home two million dollars. It's very little. I mean, that is garbage. Like think about that. Like this, this 98% fucking overhead bullshit. And I, given I, I don't take all the money from the business, but what I'm saying is it's still not very good, right? Now, however, if you take all my online courses together and you lipe up anything we're doing in the digital space to $7 million a year, I take home $5 million to that. So, so the question is, do we prefer to have a $100 million company because it's exciting, fun, and tells people like you're some hot shit 
and keep $2 million in your pocket or build a $7 million company knowing you're keeping $5 million in your pocket and you're only running it with a team less than 10 people. So, so when you're, you, you gotta understand that like the thing with business is with the age of social media today, people are so excited about big numbers that they forget that it's about what stays in your pocket. It's not about what you get to tell your friends. It's not about the Ferrari you drive. It's, it's how you feel when you're driving your Ferrari. Is it a debt you can't afford? Is it a facade you're creating? Or is it truly the freedom you've wanted to experience? And I think we forget that with social media today because so many people are out to sell us something by showing us something that is their perceived creation of what others should want them to be. But at the end of the day, we still miss the part that how we feel when we drive the Ferrari is what essentially matters. Do we feel free or do we feel trapped? And that is the key that young people need to learn today. Well, what is freedom for you? Uh, mental freedom. It's all it is. It's knowing you are completely okay. free of the societal controls that exist around you. Meaning like think about like society as a whole, right? We'll look at a law being created and we go, fuck, like this sucks. But, but it only sucks if you're poor. It doesn't suck if you have money because you can always find ways around it. I'll give you a very simple example, right? Let's say you, you're, you're a poor young lady and you live in a state where uh, they're trying to ban abortions, right? You have your own thought process about like what is right, what is wrong, what you want or not. But let's just assume that the law steps in and sets that boundary for you. But you obviously feel violated and you don't want to deal with that. You want to get an abortion. Now your state prevents you from doing it. This is only an issue for a person that cannot afford to leave the state, leave the country, or get the proper medical care anywhere. If you have $10 million, do you think you give a shit what the law in your country is? No, you're just getting a fucking private jet. You go somewhere else, you handle it, you come back. Okay, 20 grand later, your life continues. Nothing's happened. And one of the things people don't understand is your number one role before anything else should be to buy your time back from society. Because you see, the one thing that's happened in the world is that we all are always and forever are going to be slaves to time. We cannot turn time back. We cannot go back and extend our time. Time is something that we do not control. And that is what I meant with third dimensional versus fourth dimensional awareness, what I was saying about my last book. Uh, so third dimensional people are stuck in this fear of time. Fourth dimensional people control time. So in the state of a third dimensional thought, then you cannot change the timeline that exists from beginning to end. You simply exist within it, right? So the beginning of your journey should be spent earning what enables the freedom of the end of your journey. So if you make enough money to not be confined to doing what others expect you to do, then you have beat society at its own game, correct? Because you can then have the freedom to choose how you spend your time. It doesn't, you see people correlate time to money. They go, well, if you have money, then you know, you're buying time and therefore you can spend more. It's, it's not about that. It's about choosing how you spend time. Nobody said because you have money, you should just sit at home and not do shit. It's not about retiring for the money. It's about understanding that the first retirement you have in life is the retirement from a job that you never wanted to have to begin with. The second retirement you have in life is the one where you've earned the freedom to actually know and understand what purpose you wanted to assign your life. And, and that is where true freedom comes in, is living a purposeful life where we understand why we wake up every day and we are not bound by the fears that society has created for us that prevent us from doing the things we believe we can accomplish. And I didn't say destined to because we shape our destiny based on our choices all the time. But, but the basic correlation of it is to understand that if we are earning enough money in the earlier stages of our life, 
we are simply buying our future time by giving ourselves the ultimate choice, which is if I have $10 million and I can make that last 30 years, I can choose how I spend 30 years. Now, if I want to choose a life that is very lavish with private jets and this and that, I may need $40 million to have the true freedom of not only my time in addition to you know, the lifestyle that I want to live. And again, we can come up with that number, earn that number, and then buy whatever time we have left. Or we can earn a number that allows us to buy our time and then spend our time buying our lifestyle. Get it? Like of what we want after. And that is a personal choice as well. Not everybody needs a Ferrari. Not everybody needs a Lamborghini. Not everybody needs a private jet. But here's what I argue all the time with people when they say, well, we're content with our Honda Civic or some bullshit, you know, car. And I tell people this. I go, if you had the choice of driving a Ferrari or Honda Civic, you'd be an imbecile to actually choose a Honda Civic. A Honda Civic was built by a robot on an assembly line with no passion, no drive to simply facilitate time management for a poor person. A Ferrari was built to manage an experience for someone who can pursue their passion. Why would you not want to step into the cockpit of someone else's passion versus step into the cockpit of a robot that has zero zero drive towards making your commute any better other than just making you feel comfortable being miserable in life. So if you have the choice, you should always pick the Ferrari. And if you have the choice to strive for a Ferrari or strive for on the Civic, just strive for a Ferrari. Even if you get to a level where you say, listen, I've made 200K, I don't want to buy a car. That's a priority choice. That's fine. But you should never say that I don't need to make 200K to buy a car. You should always strive to be in a position to afford the life that you should be experiencing. And driving on the Civic is not an experience that is memorable by any means. Yeah, I, I, I totally see where the, philosophi, uh, the philosopher in you is coming out now. And I can really appreciate that. And um, I, I love what you said about freedom. I'm, I'm curious, like in your own life, do you have any markers or boundaries um, to, to either identify what is freedom for you or, you know, something comes up and you realize, oh, that's taking a bit of my freedom away. What can I do to, um, get rid of it or, or change that? I've done that all the time. I mean, think about it. Like anytime I'm unhappy, I make a decision to instantly change. I was unhappy in my marriage. In one day I decided to get divorced. Like I didn't wait for that action to take place. Meaning that is the constraint of a, a human who doesn't, live by a boundary is a human that understands that when a boundary is created internally, it is immediately destroyed because it would be foolish to stay in a marriage you're unhappy with. It would be foolish for you to uh, be in a job you don't want to be in. Every day you should be applying for a better job. Like this is the thing. So many people tell us they're unhappy with their job, right? They go, Hey, what do you do? Oh, I work at this place. I hate it. But yet if you ask that person last yesterday, how many jobs did you apply for when you went home? Oh, none. How about the day before? None. How about tomorrow? None. I don't know where to, what, what do you mean? You're unhappy here, but you're not trying to leave. So, so you accept the boundary of control and then you become a victim to it. When I had just $3 million in my bank account and I had an opportunity to buy these Ferraris and I said, I can buy these cars. I took that opportunity because I realized that the only thing that would prevent me from doing that is the fear that I wouldn't make it. Right. And instead I said, let me not allow a fear to drive a decision. Let me allow belief in myself to drive the decision. Therefore, let me choose me over what me cannot be, right? Like it's very simple, but it's, this is the thing about life. The majority of life is extremely simple and people complicate it with an emotional reaction based on fear. It's like fear of what if I leave my marriage and I can't find better? What if I leave my marriage and she's unhappy? But it doesn't matter. You're unhappy now. 
Like something has to change. If it doesn't change, it doesn't change. And I'm never willing to allow circumstance to keep me stuck in a situation, no matter how possibly dangerous the outcome of the following situation could be. So uh, I think like, um, you know, the way I think, I think like there's, there's things that you can do that can make you temporarily unhappy, but they, they overall lead to something that will make you happy. Like, you know, say you want to remodel your house. That's been a dream for you. And, but cleaning the toilet or installing the toilet or something like that, it makes you unhappy in the short term. So, well, that's not unhappiness though. That's pain. Okay. Okay. So there's, there, you see, like, again, definitions matter too. When you talk about happiness versus pain, it, these are completely different things. Like a journey will have moments of pain. If a, if a destination is clear and purpose exists in the journey, then the person will endure the pain knowing where they're heading. The problem where, the problem where someone goes unhappy is the, is the point where they experience pain without an actual uh, very direct destination as to where the happiness lies. So let me give you the basic context of how people misunderstand happiness. If we think about happiness as a whole, people say, if I have things, I'm happy. They, they take their happiness in, I want to be happy. I want to have a loved one. I want to have this car. I want to have this house. These are the things that are going to draw in my head as happiness. Except those things are temporary. When you get the house you want, you're only happy because you wanted it. Then you want something else. So you're unhappy during right. that journey. And you don't know how to get that next $10 million house. So you don't have that journey, that destination clearly outlined. So you start becoming unhappy. If happiness is aligned, is aligned to meaning, then, then it becomes a constant internal state. So what do I mean by that? When you define where you're heading in life, you give your life a destination. Therefore, you provided meaning, even if that meaning is short and will change over time, but you provided a destination. The progress you make towards that, towards that destination is what aligns to providing more meaning to your life and is what leads to happiness. So if you look at your life through a destination state, if you ask any unhappy, this is the way you can simplify it so I don't confuse the shit out of your audience. It's just say this. If you ask any unhappy person, what do you want in 10 years? They don't know what they want for their own life. No idea. They may know things they may want in their life, but they don't know what they want in their own life. And as a result of that, they cannot make progress towards that internal journey. And so they will only be as happy as what the external journey they experience is. And as that changes, they will constantly go from a state of unhappiness to happiness. Does that make sense? It makes total sense. Total sense. Yeah. So that's the way you kind of simplify it so people don't get confused. I've been digging a lot lately on like planning the next decade because, um, you know, I've been an entrepreneur for 10 years and in 2009, I was selling on Amazon and I did it for like six months or so. And I thought, oh, this, this doesn't work. This isn't for me. And I thought like, well, if I would have stuck that out for 10 years, you know, I could be retired now. Correct. Um, yeah. And so this is something that, you know, I'm now planning. It's 2020. I'm planning for, okay, what's my full commitments for the next decade? What do I, just like you said, what do I want my life to be like? Um, and what are the pursuits that I'm going to follow to make me happy? And so, um, when you look at, this is something you talk about as well. When you look at like the next 10 years or committing to a goal for 10 years, like how do you see that? How does that play out and how do you map it out? Well, I map out kind of what I expect to see happen 10 years from now. And then I map out one year goals to where does that, the reason I don't map out a 10 year goal is because environments change, 
and things change that are out of your control. So you must adapt quickly. So if I have a 10 year vision for the size of my business, not just monetarily, but the impact we want to make, the things we want to do, how many brands we want to own, what are the things that I want to do? Then at, from that level, I can come up with each year, how do I break that down in a way where I feel like I'm moving towards that meaning, right? Now, even if at the end of year three, I may completely change that meaning based on what I realize is happening in the environment. You know, if you would have asked me 10 years ago if I felt that VIP motoring would be a dying business 10 years later, the answer would be no, because I don't think people will come into my space. I have a competitive advantage doing it. I don't think it's possible. But as I watch the environment elevate, I've adapted my business to ensuring not only we're successful monetarily, but can retain our customer base, right? And I've also looked at how do we expand and work now for 10 years later so that we can transition from an actual online concierge service with this investment model into an online infomercial product with do-it-yourself-at-home that we've mastered so that we can turn into an all-digital agency, get it? So basically, a lot of people at the beginning go, oh, well, this is stupid. You're dumping a $100 million business to get into like a $10 million business where you're selling infomercials. No, I'm crafting my future by paying attention to the fact that 10 years from now, digital will rule everything physical. And I need five years to learn the process on how to be talented at that. And that's the part most people miss is I needed five years establishing Secret Entourage to learn the ins and outs of infomercials and how online marketing works to be in a position to create new platforms and launch seven-figure like budgets instantly because I understood the model of how to do it. And what people didn't realize is the investment in the first five years of my life was not because I wanted to build a business that would outweigh my first one. It was because I prepared myself to be the CEO of a new business that would revolutionize my old one, get it? And I needed five years to learn. And so people say, why would you work five years for free in the digital space without making any money when you've got this other business making all this money? This is exactly why. Because I wasn't a digital marketer and I had to learn and I gave myself five years to learn. And that's why our first business took you know, six years to make its first like 100 grand, you know, 200 grand. And then the year after that, it made a million bucks. And when Exotic Car Hacks launched in three years, it made a million bucks. And when Watch Training Academy launched in six months, it made a million bucks. So what I'm saying is, this is what people didn't realize. They saw just the business. They didn't see the journey and the idea that the business was only the beginning of my journey in a new space. That's incredible. I can't wait to re-listen to this podcast, man. <laughs> it's good. I mean, that is valuable. <laughs> That's the point. <laughs> yeah. Okay. We're coming coming towards the end of our time here, and I think that's a really good good spot to leave and wrap up the show. But um, you know, if the listeners want to uh, reach out and learn more about what you have going on, where's the best place that you that they can find you at? So first off, follow me on Instagram at I Create Millionaires. It's a very simple uh, nickname that I've gotten. I Create Millionaires. Uh, it's a really good place to go. But also learn from PJ.com. We'll give you an overview of all the courses I have. And then PejmanGadini.com if you just want to learn more about other podcasts I've been on or anything else you want to learn or are intrigued by my books, that's a good place to find them. Any final tips you'd like to give the listeners before we wrap up? Oh, sure. Uh, I mean, one of the things I always tell people is, I, I think we covered in this podcast, but it's, if you are not in a position to be willing to master yourself, you will never master a trade or a craft. And I think one of the big things we miss out on life for is everything we do, we try to do with a purpose of what's in it for me. 
We're not doing it with a purpose of what can I learn to use later? That is the difference between people who define 10-year goals versus one-year goals. I would, for example, people learn stock trading because they want to learn to trade stocks to make money today. I just choose to learn stock trading so I can hold a conversation tomorrow. And I may or may not want to indulge in stock trading in 10 years. I don't need to become a stock trader to learn how to trade stocks. And this is the difference between uh, true education and formal education is that formal education ends for people when they're no longer given a reward like a diploma or a guaranteed of a job. But true education is when we realize that we as individuals have to continuously push ourselves to adapt and learn and the discomfort and the barrier of control there is something we need to learn to overcome as well, even if it's not fun. You said it earlier, we need to first learn to do what we need to do until we're in a position to learn what we want to do. Beautiful, man. PJ, I want to give you a uh, so many thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for um, sharing all your tips and tricks and methods and wisdom with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much, my friend. I appreciate you for having me. It's been fun. And listeners, thank you guys for tuning in once again, and we'll see you on the next episode. Goodbye, everybody. Hey, listeners, thanks for joining us once again. We wanted to remind you about our high-performance productivity coaching and our five, six, seven, and eight-figure private masterminds. These are all designed for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs to help you scale rapidly and grow. Check out all the details at thebusinessmethod.com. That's thebusinessmethod.com. And we'll see you all on the next episode.